Well, it's an honor and a privilege to be able to uh, bring the Word of God to you again this morning. Um, we've been here, I don't know, it's about a couple months now, I think, and uh, settling into our home and, and doing some tinkering around on things. And, uh, you know, it reminds you that it's, it's really helpful to have the right tool for a job. Uh, have you ever used a tool for something that it wasn't intended for? Anybody? How'd that go for you? You know, maybe uh, you use your keys to kind of to, to, to screw in a, a screw or, or the handle of a screwdriver to pound a nail. It doesn't really work that well. Uh, it reminded me of um, a tool that I used when I was a little boy, probably about eight years old. I was the oldest. I had two younger sisters. And I remember playing barbershop with my uh, younger sister, Angie. Uh, she was probably six at the time. We didn't have a pair of scissors to use, and so I used my mom's grass shears uh, on, on her hair, and uh, it wasn't a very precise cut. The clippers looked like scissors. Uh, they thought they might you know, be close enough, but mom didn't appreciate it. Didn't help the fact that uh, Angie had just had her hair cut in preparation for her school pictures later that week. And uh, so I'm here to tell you that using a tool for something other than its intended use, its intended purpose, doesn't lead to the best results. And in some cases, it hurts, if you know what I mean, if you can imagine. Well, the same is true when we think about our lives. Uh, We're created for a, a, a specific purpose. Were we created for a specific purpose? Or are we just random molecules put together by chance? Are we designed uh, or are we the, an accident of nature? If we're accidents, there's no overarching purpose or meaning, no inherent meaning. The only thing we can do is try to make the best of our brief existence here on this, on this earth and, and make it as pleasurable as possible. But if we're designed, then that means there's a designer and he has a purpose for making us. Our lives don't work right if they're out of sync with that purpose. And so these two options result in two entirely different approaches to life. Now, we're encouraged to know ourselves, to to know who we are, to, to know yourself so that you know what's best for you, so you know how to make sense out of out of life, to make the right choices for you. You need to do that in light of, of who you are. The problem though with only self-knowledge is that we're limited. You know, we change, our perspectives change. We don't truly know ourselves. We have blind spots. We're we're limited. Psalm 24 reminds us that we can never arrive at true, ultimate self-knowledge and therefore a perspective on how to live life most effectively without, without understanding our lives in light of God, our Creator. And so it's important not only to know who we are, we must know whose we are if we're to make sense out of our lives. So listen to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is a psalm of David, and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and therefore it's the Word of God. Listen to Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? 
the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is He, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You don't just leave us on our own to try to make sense out of our life with our our limited perspective, our finite experience, our limited wisdom. But Lord God, You've revealed Yourself to us. You've revealed Yourself to us throughout history, Lord, that has been recorded in Your Word, which has been inspired by You. Uh, you, you initiate with us. You invite us into a relationship on the basis of what you've done in time and space. So we thank you. Lord, we pray that we would hear from your word today, that your spirit would speak your words to our hearts, making us receptive, encouraging us where we need encouraging, challenging us where we need challenging Lord, and, and, uh, and meeting with us that we might know you and we might follow you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in light of, of this text from Psalm 24, I want to ask three questions for our consideration today. And the, and the first is, is just this question, why would you want to seek God's face? Psalm 24 talks about seeking God's face. Why would we want to do that? And the, and the psalm gives us three reasons, three main reasons. The first that it, it mentions is that God is our creator. The first words of the psalm issue forth this absolute, you know, uh, resounding declaration of ownership. It says, the earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Look at anything in the world. Beautiful mountain, natural resources, our houses, our children, our own faces in the mirror, and only one thing needs to be said. It's God's. It belongs to God. Whether you believe that or not doesn't change the fact. Scripture teaches us that that's the reality, and humans have always struggled with this idea. From our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, God's one prohibition in the garden was too burdensome for them. And, and rather than obey God on the basis of His authority, they chose to be their own authority, to make their own call on what is good for their lives. And, and we're no different. Our sinful default is to reject God's ownership over our lives and to live as if we were autonomous as if we had the ultimate right of, of decision. It's like a, a pair of grass shears saying, I don't care why I was made. I don't want to cut grass. I want to cut hair. But, but, but what does that get us? I mean, look at our world. Look at, look at ourselves. Confusion. 
and disappointment and heartache. There has to be a better way. But what basis does God have of claiming ownership over everything? What gives Him this right? Well, verse 2 tells us, God founded it. God established the world and everything in it. He created it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Nothing short of an act of creation can provide a, a basis for such a sweeping claim of ownership as God makes in this passage. We are God's rightful possession because He made us. We should seek Him because He's our Maker. The second reason the psalm gives us for why we should seek God's face is because He blesses His people. He blesses us. In in verse 5, it tells us that those who ascend the mountain of the Lord, those who stand in His presence, verse 5, will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. And when we contemplate the state of our world and, and our own lives, the longing of our own hearts, I think it's fair to say, if you're anything like me, I think you are, we want more. We, we all have this sense that our current experience falls short of the ideal, that there's, there's more. We're created for more than this. We're looking for blessing, and we're all looking for validation that our lives count, that we're significant. Back in college, uh, a couple decades ago now, my, my favorite Christian singer at the time was Rich Mullins. I don't know if any of you recognize that name. It's been a while since he's been on the scene. He, unfortunately, he died prematurely. But uh, one of his later songs was called The Maker of Noses, of all things. It's kind of an odd title for a song, The Maker of Noses. But it begins by, by just longing for this place where we live in perfect peace where there's food on every plate, where justice reigns and truth finally wins. And, and as the song unfolds, he explains that everyone he knows wants to go to that place. But, but everybody's confused about how to find it. And so when he asks the world for its advice, where do I find it? The advice he gets back is just, just follow your heart. And, and his response is, that just led me into my chest. Or, or just follow your nose. But the direction changed every time I turned my head. Or just follow your dreams, but my dreams are only empty notions. And so in this kind of silly and and yet I think provocative way, Rich Mullins is expressing how we can't make ultimate meaning for ourselves. We need some reference point outside of ourselves. And, And so in light of those inadequacies, the song continues. He says, but the father of hearts and the maker of noses, and the giver of dreams. He's the one I've chosen, and I'll follow him. The blessing that we're looking for, a perfect world, right relationships, harmony, and peace, it can only be found in a right relationship with God. You're not going to find it anywhere else. But even more important than what God can do for us is the fact that God wants to give us himself. There's nothing more glorious than God. He is ultimate. 
He is supreme. He's infinite and majestic and all-powerful and all-wise and merciful and gracious and just and loving. Can we possibly know a person like that? Can we have him for a friend? In fact, we can. That's what seeking God's face is all about. In the Bible, this, this idea of seeking God's face or, or, or seeing God face to face is this ultimate vision of ultimately what heaven will be like. We'll see him face to face. That carries this idea of intimate interaction, of, of, of close relationship, affection, even friendship. The greatest thing imaginable is to live before the face of God, to reflect his character in the world, to receive the benefits of his kingdom reign. And so God doesn't just want to do things for us. That's just the icing on the cake. God wants us to know him, right? the glorious God of the universe, face to face. And so we should seek him because he's our maker. We should seek him because he blesses his people. And third, Psalm 24 teaches us that we should seek God's face Because he's the victorious king, the victorious king. God's kingship, God's authority is rooted in creation, the fact that he made all things, verses 1 and 2. But it's also, it's also established in history, in time and space. Uh, And we see that in the final section of the psalm in verses 7 through 10. And the picture here in these verses is of the arrival of the king to his holy city. And as he's approaching up the mountain, the call goes out to the watchman to lift up the gates of the ancient city that the king of glory may enter the city with his people, to be with his people and to reign and enjoy his reign. And so the call goes out twice. It's repeated in verse 7 and verse 9. And after each call, the question is asked, who is the king of glory? It's the Lord who is mighty or invincible in battle, verse 8. In verse 10, it's the Lord Almighty. We might translate that the Lord of hosts, which means the, the Lord of heaven's armies. In other words, God is celebrated in Psalm 24 as a divine warrior, a glorious and victorious king who conquers his enemies. Ours is a historical faith. We don't, we don't just affirm the belief that God created the universe. We also affirm the reality that God has acted in history to save his people. And Exodus 15 is one of those early times in the Bible when God is acknowledged explicitly to be king. And, and Exodus 15 is a song, a celebration, a worship song in response to God delivering his people out of the exodus through the Red Sea. And it affirms, Exodus 15, 3, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Why? Why is God celebrated as a warrior? Because verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he's hurled into the sea. Verse 6, your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right, right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In Exodus 15, the song goes on and it celebrates uh, that God did this in order to demonstrate his own glory. 
in order to make it clear to all the nations around him that there's one true God who reigns over everything and everyone to save his people so that he could dwell in their midst. And the Exodus, of course, points forward to an even greater deliverance. It's just a shadow, just a picture of another act of God that will be accomplished in history when God himself becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ to live and die and rise from the dead to ultimately deliver his people. It's a historical fact. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not risen, not, not, risen, not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And so we should seek God's face because the historical record shows us that God has acted on our behalf to save us from our enemies, ultimately sin and death and the devil. So Psalm 24 shows us that we should seek God's face because he's our creator, because he blesses his people, and because he's the victorious king. And all of that then begs the question, what is required to seek his face? What is required to stand in his presence? The psalmist puts it in verse 3, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The mountain of the Lord, of course, is a reference to Mount Zion, that place in Jerusalem where the temple is located. It's the place where God chose to make himself manifest in relationship with his people. He's present everywhere, but but he shows up in a special sense to be known by Israel. It's a physical symbol that represents heaven on earth. It represents being in his presence, in his midst, blessed by him. And the question is, who can stand in that place? And the answer is given in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. David, in, in, in the psalm, gives us four, four criteria for standing in God's presence. Clean hands. Right? This is a reference to, to moral integrity in our outward actions. The way we, we treat other people. Pure heart, this refers to an inward holiness. Uh, our, our thoughts, our motivations, our desires. Do you love holiness and hate sin? Do you care for and think the best of others? You ever get road rage because someone is minding their own business, driving the speed limit in front of you of all things? Jesus said in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. God's standards are always higher than the standards that we set for ourselves. The one who is qualified to come into God's presence does not lift his or her soul to an idol, it says. Is there anything that you feel you have to have besides God to be happy? If so, that that thing has become a functional God for you, an idol 
that you worship alongside the Lord. This person does not swear by what is false. All of our dealings with others must be in integrity. And so, in other words, the person who's qualified to stand in God's presence is the one whose entire life is consecrated to God. Everything they do, everything they think, everything they value follows from their recognition that they belong to God and that He is their rightful King and they're seeking to live accordingly. How do you stack up against that list? Understood in this light, Psalm 24 forces us to ask a third question. How is it possible to stand in God's presence? How is it possible to meet that criteria? It's clear, I think, if we're honest, none of us is qualified to ascend the mountain of the Lord. Uh, we read earlier in our, in our preparation, Isaiah got a glimpse of God. Isaiah the prophet, in, in his response is to pronounce curse on himself. Woe to me, an unclean person. What do we do? Do we despair? Do we have no hope of seeing God's face and receiving blessings from His reign? The good news of the gospel is that one has ascended the mountain of the Lord for us. Like other religions, Christianity also affirms that only the good, only the holy can be in God's presence. But unlike other religions, the good one is not us. It's Christ. What we were unable to do, He has done for us. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Jesus may. So this psalm is not primarily about us. It is eventually about us, but it's primarily about Christ. Now, it's interesting to me that ancient rabbinic sources tell us that Psalm 24 was always recited on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, of course. And it's interesting that this is the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem during the Passion Week in order to go to the cross. So imagine the scene. I mean, just think about this. Outside, while Jesus is ascending the hill to go to the Temple Mount, He's going towards the gates of Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey. The people are exclaiming, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. (laughs) And at the same time, inside the temple, the priests are reciting, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord Almighty, He is the King of glory. Christ is the mighty warrior who defeats our greatest enemies, who achieves the victory of God's reign through His death on a cross. He conquers sin and death and the devil. It's Jesus alone who has ascended on high by His merit. He alone has clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus alone consecrated his entire life to the Father. He alone is qualified to enter into the gates of heaven. (laughs) But get this. Through his death 
and resurrection, he has thrown wide the gates to all who would follow him by faith. Because of what he's done for us, he offers the benefits of what he has done, what he has earned to us by grace through faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. We are made righteous, not by our own righteousness, but as a gift of someone else's righteousness, the king of glory himself. This is the heart of what the blessing and the vindication that David talks about in verse 5 is all about. Only when I see Christ has already ascended the hill for me can I even begin to try to live my life for His glory out of love. Otherwise, I'll never even start down the road. It's too high. I can't do it. I'd be discouraged by my failures. But God has already set His love on me prior to my obedience because Christ has gone before me. Without knowing that, I'd never have the heart to start or to keep going when I struggled. Where are you this morning? If you're living as if you were your own king, autonomous, calling the shots, declaring what is right and wrong for you, recognize that God is your creator. God has ownership rights over you. You need to acknowledge that if you're living autonomously, independent of Him, then you are actually in rebellion against your King. Come to Jesus. Come to the one who was obedient in your place. Trust Him to reconcile you to your rightful divine King. Well, maybe you're here and and, and you want to take this seriously, and you're trying to ascend the hill on your own. If you're trying to earn God's favor with your moral effort, realize you can't. You fall short of the glory of God, but Jesus has done it for you. Receive and rest upon Him alone as He's offered in the gospel. It's only when you see that God has already accepted you because of what Jesus did, it's only then that you'll really want to live for Him with your heart, from your heart. You must see and rejoice and rest in Christ's obedience for you before you'll ever obey Him for the right reasons. On the other hand, if you presume that because you've trusted Jesus you can continue in your sin, you're on a dangerous road. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound all the more? May it never be, Paul says. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? It's precisely because we've trusted Christ that we're able by His Spirit working in us to put aside our former way of life and to put on a new self created to be like God in righteousness and holiness, we're told in Ephesians 4. You belong to God because He's your Creator, but also because He's your Savior. Paul put it this way in Galatians 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, 
But Christ lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Know whose you are. So you may need to ask yourself, where in my life, what aspect of my life am I living as if God didn't exist? Where am I ignoring him? Where do I need to align my life to match up with God's purpose for me? All of us are looking for meaning and purpose. Psalm 24 reminds us that we can only know who we are and to fulfill that purpose when we first understand whose we are. You belong to God, whether you acknowledge it or not, because He created you because he's the king of the world. And despite the fact that we have failed to live up to that purpose, he loves us so much that he didn't even spare his own son, but freely gave us him up for us all. His son was given to ascend the mountain for us and to throw wide open the gates of the temple that we might enter in through him. The lie of the devil is that you're better off being your own God, calling the shots for yourself, being your own authority, rather than submitting your life to the Creator God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Your greatest dignity, the most important purpose imaginable that you can live for is to stand in the presence of the ultimate one, the God who created you, to bear His image, to reflect His character increasingly as he works within you by his grace in this world and for all eternity. May that be true of you. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you that you set your affection on us. You created us in your image to reflect you and live for your glory, to enjoy you as we do that. And Lord, even though we fail to do that, even though we fall short of your glory, despite that, you show how much you love us by sending your Son to become one of us, to ascend the mountain for us. Thank you that as Hebrews said, because we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, we have an advocate with you. He has torn wide the curtain. He has opened the way into the Holy of Holies in heaven. And we have bold and confident access there in your presence because of Christ. Thank you that you don't leave us in our sin, in our brokenness, as we flounder around in this life. Thank you that you come to us You initiate with us. You bring us into your family. Lord, would we know more of your love? Would we experience it more deeply, more fully? Would who we are in Christ, would the reality of the gospel promises so shape our hearts that we respond by imaging you, reflecting you, being increasingly renewed in the image of God, that we would be people with clean hands and a pure heart, pure worship, and of integrity for your glory, to be a blessing to others, 
that they may know you as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.